research that showed a correlation between these hormonal spikes and growth. But as any good researcher will tell you, correlation does not equal causation. It wasn't because of the hormonal response. It was in spite of it, really, that you were seeing somewhat greater growth. People think that research is going to tell you what to do or to prove certain things. Research really tends to suggest certain things. And there's always going to be or generally will be conflicting research. One study will show one thing. Another study kind of shows something else. And you start to look at, you synthesize the body of evidence to see what the preponderance of evidence shows. And certainly, I think that anyone who's looked at the research will say the preponderance of evidence does not show that these hormonal spikes really uh, should be used for programming. I think that would be the best way to, to say it. Hello and welcome back to the Supporting Champions podcast. I'm Steve Ingham and if this is your first time tuning in then you're in for a treat. This is where we explore the often invisible aspects of achieving greatness and aspiring to perform whether in sport, business or life in general. We're not just about the headlines here, we're about the fine print, the strategies, the setbacks and the comebacks that make the journey worthwhile. And we talk to experts from various fields, from coaches and scientists to leaders and, of course, performers. So it's not just about the performers. These are also about the people behind the scenes, the ones who are making champions what they are. But let's be clear. This podcast isn't just for the elites or the top professionals. It's for anyone who believes in pushing their own boundaries, who believes in the power of progress over perfection. It's for anyone who's committed to improving to learning and to taking action. Whether you're a student, a professional or someone simply interested in personal growth, there's something here for you. So if you're ready to dig deeper and apply some real world insights to your own life, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Today, we're venturing into the ever-evolving world of strength, power, and muscle growth. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Brad Schoenfeld, who hails from Lehman College in New York, and he's a real luminary in the field of strength conditioning. Brad is not just an academic, he's an applied scientist and an advisor of others. But in his work, he's true to the principles of science, in that while he advises people based on sound principles, as evidence merges in the literature, if that evidence evolves further, his advice evolves. His research has done just that, so much so that the findings have been considered really disruptive and somewhat challenging to some people. His groundbreaking research has been shaking up the long-held beliefs and sparking animated debates among athletes, coaches, scientists and practitioners and athletes alike. If you've ever questioned the conventional wisdom around strength training, then today's episode is your gateway to the latest evidence-based practices. We'll be navigating through some of those shifts that have occurred in strength conditioning research over the past 15 years, the controversies that have emerged and the practical implications for athletes across various different disciplines. We'll also delve into the nitty-gritty of training mechanisms and session structures. I'm excited for you to benefit from this episode, whether you are looking to adapt your training or tune in to how a scientist is driving development in a field.
Brad, well, welcome. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. How, how are you? My pleasure, Steve. I'm great. Fantastic. Now, look, for, for anyone who's not, um, not familiar with your background, I'm sure loads of people follow you uh, on social media, but could you just give me a bit of a, a, bit of a background to, to you? Sure. I'm a uh, researcher, educator, professor. I uh, teach. I, I'm the director of the Human Performance, uh, Human Performance and Fitness Program, the graduate program at Lehman College in the Bronx. Um, I do a lot of research. I've published over 300 peer-reviewed articles. I uh, do a lot of lecturing uh, in terms of uh, speaking, you know, international speaking. And uh, my primary role is as an educator that I look to um, inform the public uh, and, and, you know, the people at large about uh, fitness, the importance of it, and uh, and evidence-based practice around uh, fitness. And uh, as, a, as an athlete, I mean, I can see a few um, few shots of you doing a few poses uh, as, a, as a bodybuilder in a previous world life, or do you still do that? I haven't body. I haven't stepped on stage in a long time. Certainly, I still work out uh, quite uh, strictly. But uh, yeah, I, I bodybuilded for. Is that a word? Bodybuilded. I was a bodybuilding competitor for uh, multiple years, for four, four or five years uh, in my thirties. So, ah, okay, thirties. Is that quite late? Um, yeah, um, not necessarily. Uh, some people do it early. Some people don't get into it. Bodybuilding is a sport, fortunately, that can be practiced across the wide spectrum of age ranges. So, yeah, okay, all right. And, and an athletic background before that, or did you did you come to it later? Um, yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I played uh, baseball. Or, you know, I played some sports, uh, but uh, in my once I got into my adult years. Really, I did more uh, mixed martial arts. I did uh, studied various martial art forms and uh, bodybuilding. Mm. Uh, was there anything specifically that that uh, drew you to researching muscle, muscle growth, strength, power? Well, yeah. So uh, I was a skinny kid uh, as, throughout my high school years and throughout all my uh, adolescent years. And uh, bodybuilding literally changed my life. It changed the way I felt about myself, thought about myself, uh, my whole attitude. And uh, it, uh, I guess once a bro, always a bro kind of thing that I, uh, I wanted to, uh, first of all, I, I started looking into science to help me achieve my potential after I hit plateaus on, on basic routines that I was doing. And uh, it just progressed. And as I became a trainer, I was a personal trainer for many years uh, before going, uh, before becoming an educator. And um, as a trainer, I worked with a lot of bodybuilders and, and figure fitness competitors, female. And uh, I always was looking for the better way to get clients results. And it kind of just was an outgrowth of all that. Mm. So I wanted to, to get in touch with you. Um, as a follow along with the, your work and and what you communicate on various different platforms and and what was fascinating for me was some of the new evidence that's emerging in the strength of muscle growth literature and I found that particularly interesting that 
it, it was it was challenging a few people. <laughs> uh, it was challenging a few people's ideas, principles of training, and that piqued my interest to to get in touch. And I'd love to cover some of that with you today. Um, but before perhaps we get into some of that emerging evidence, could you sort of take me back in time a little bit and paint a picture of of anyone who's listening? If we re- we rewound say, 15, 20 years or so, about the major factors that we'd be considering or the principles that we might be under using for strength, power, muscle muscle hypertrophy programming. Um, and then maybe we can get into how it's changed with recent times. So just to clarify, you're asking what were the previous... Uh... Yeah, well, if you were to go back in time, 15, 20 years or so, what, um, what would be the sort of the key principles of programming those those sort of solid blocks of knowledge that nearly everybody was accepting before some of the new emerging evidence challenged it yeah i'll stick to hypertrophy muscle growth for this particular topic because i don't think the strength data has changed meaningfully in that regard uh or certainly as much but hypertrophy is the one it's the area first of all that is a primary area of interest as far as I am concerned and really has undergone, I think the most uh, radical changes in terms of what we, what we now believe based or based or in, in opposition to what we once believed. So yeah, um, hypertrophy programming was, a lot of it was based on what's called the hormone hypothesis. So there was a theory that um, the post-exercise hormonal response so at what you uh, what your hormone spike would be after a resistance training bout was a primary driver of muscle growth, and that basically it's testosterone growth hormone and IGF one, which are anabolic hormones, uh, and they are spiked under certain conditions for longer periods of time, um, or or, for, or to a greater extent, but really for only about an hour, two hours max post-exercise. And it was thought that that was this critical window that drove the hypertrophic process. And uh, that led to theories about how to program for hypertrophy, including short rest periods, um, generally uh, moderate repetitions, um, uh, multiple sets. I mean, some of them, some of them have actually shown to have validity uh, but not because of the reason. So long story short, the hormone hypothesis was challenged and most of the evidence we have now shows it really does not mean much, if anything, as far as the growth uh, response is concerned, that just because you experience a greater hormonal response does not mean you're going to get more hypertrophy. And, and it, uh, conversely, if you don't get a high hormonal response, doesn't mean you're not going to get robust hypertrophy. So, uh, that, I think that kind of gives the background. That was a primary method of training, but or primary method of programming. But there, there were other uh, other theories that came out of the gym uh, that people would promote. Um, I mean, another popular one was that uh, you should not train with less than twelve to certainly fifteen repetitions. That the weight would basically be too light to. Uh, to target, to recruit, and to stimulate the highest threshold motor units, which are associated with the type 2 muscle fibers, the ones that are, have the highest growth potential. 
So generally, it was thought that heavier loads were more conducive towards muscle growth. Mm. And so, why do you think we were entrenched with that? Is it was it were we programming for testosterone growth hormone responses? Um, was it the, we were sort of trying to manipulate or try and create a physiological response as opposed to the actual adaptation that we want? want to get is it a little bit no. like setting hard training sessions for intervals to get a high lactate not necessarily run fast yeah no um it was because there was research that showed a correlation between these hormonal spikes and growth but as any good researcher will tell you correlation does not equal causation um so some of these correlations there were spurious correlations that just didn't it wasn't because of the hormonal response. It was in spite of it, really, that you were seeing somewhat greater growth. Um, and more sophisticated research that tried to look at the actual tie-in that had better um, better methods to try to draw causality did not show that these hormonal spikes uh, were causative of growth. or Or if they were, it was... The the evidence would suggest that they had little effect. So again, I, I don't want to, people think that research is going to tell you what to do or to prove certain things. Research really tends to suggest certain things. And there's always going to be, or generally will be conflicting research. One study will show one thing, another study kind of shows something else. And you start to look at, you synthesize the body of evidence to see what the preponderance of evidence shows. And certainly I think that anyone who's looked at the research will say the preponderance of evidence does not show that these hormonal spikes really uh, should be used for programming. I think that would be the best way to to say it. And and if I could just stick with that idea of you know, where have we come from, um, the heavy loads, the low reps, is that... Is that um, based on you know, good research too? Or is that really as much actually just some ego infecting, this is the way to do it, this is the way to, to train? Well, I think there's some of that in terms of the gym gym lore, you know, kind of the uh, bro logic, if you will. Um, or some people would call it bro science. But um, but there there was certain science around that too, showing that they would have EMG studies that would show that if you okay. lift light loads, the uh, you would not get as high electromyographic activity with light loads. But there was problems with that. Re- you have to then look into the research because the research would not be taken to failure, not be or even a point close to failure. So yeah, if you lift a light load for let's say eight reps. And then you lift a an eight RM for eight reps, where your last reps are really struggling. You're not comparing apples to apples. And what the research really over time started to show mm. was that if you were training closer to failure, you were going to start to recruit the higher threshold motor units associated with these uh, fast twitch, the uh, type two muscle fibers. And I think more importantly. It was not based, the research was not based on any longitudinal or very little longitudinal research, which actually looked at muscle growth. So we started over the past uh, 10 years or so, we've gotten this explosion of research into light load training, where we're looking at 20, 30, 
plus reps uh, and comparing it directly to kind of that quote unquote hypertrophy zone, that eight to 12, six to 12 uh, rep range. And there's no differences. Our, our group carried out that research. Uh, we've carried out several studies on the topic. And again, the research is really clear on that. Uh, there's f- few topics that I would say I have strong, that I would uh, really draw strong inferences from based on the literature. That's one of them, that uh, you can get whole muscle hypertrophy training across a wide spectrum of loading ranges. And that's anywhere from you know your three to five rep range so your powerlifting type rep range, all the way up to thirty plus reps. Mm. And and we're talking here about muscle hypertrophy, so cross sectional area of the muscle belly. We're Correct. talking about fractional synthesis rate, so uptake of protein into the muscle. And we're talking about some of those this fundamental underpinning. <laughs> if the muscles got bigger, um, science uh, that that is like for like similar effects for loading for 30 plus 30 or so reps all the way down to 30 and that's that's a huge percentage of one rep max there that's and that i can imagine that's quite challenging for people it seems like people got quite animated about the findings how how have people responded to to you and and why do you think that's the case yeah there's uh you always get backlash so um you know, first of all, a lot of people, with a lot of people, fitness has become religion. And uh, if they believe something, they don't want to, if you challenge someone's beliefs, people get, it's almost an insult to certain people. Like, like as a, you know, to me, a true scientist, and I consider myself certainly a true scientist, it's a badge of courage to change your opinion if if you're doing it for the right based on science, not just because you're looking to make a buck or something. But if you're, to me, I assess, I'm constantly reassessing my beliefs. And if the literature starts to show something else, I'll then reassess. I'll say, well, why did I, you know, why is it conflicting with what science used to show and what my beliefs were? And when the evidence becomes strong enough, I start to change my opinion or certainly question my opinion. But there are people that somehow feel that, this is a threat to their uh, ego, uh, and you know, and, and there's also a lot of people they just don't understand science, and uh, they kind of think, well, I've been doing it and I get quote unquote results, so don't tell me, uh, you know, what what I could be doing else, uh, uh, you know, uh, otherwise, because this is what I'm I've been doing well with, and and that's all well and good. I I don't tell, for me as a scientist. I give people options. I, I tell them what mm. this shows and I give them my opinion as to how you might be able to put this into practice. You know, not only am I a scientist, um, but I've consulted with some of the top pro bodybuilders in the world and, and high-level amateurs. So I've had a long career. And as I said, I was a personal trainer before becoming a, a researcher educator. And I've been uh, working in the field and consulting with uh, that crowd. So uh, I I also speak from an applied standpoint. I'm not just spewing theory. Uh, I also have a very intricate understanding of how the concepts can be put into practice. And again, that doesn't mean there's many different ways to go about programming. So I would also never say that my way of programming is 
necessarily the way to program. It's something I know that can be successful and it's based on, on evidence. But once we understand the research, we can have differences of opinion, mm. how to go about it. And certainly what I'd also say is that I never give the same program to everyone because people respond differently. And the true evidence-based practitioner is always going to use the science and use their own expertise to then work in context with the individual and tailor the program based upon certain certain templates and certain principles to that individual. And, and there will be manipulations of frequency and load and uh, volume and other variables that will all uh, come into play based on that individual response. Mm. Yeah, and as applied scientist myself, that's that to me is it just opens up options. So it's it's a case of I, I want to get results for somebody. So it, it opens up options to be able to use different training modes, different methodologies. And what's interesting, I suppose, it's similar to the high intensity literature. I think in endurance sports is that it, it's saying it's equivalent or it's it's getting similar effects. Well, there's no difference in effects. It's not necessarily saying overall, as far as I understand, that it's a superiority to. to and, and so in that sense, if it has worked for somebody using three to five reps uh, sets, then that's, that's fine. Go for it. That's, that's great for you. But don't rule out this other way that, that it might be useful for you at some point in the future because that could, that could come in. It's so well articulated, uh, Steve. And I, I'd go further. First of all, it doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily have to be a binary choice where you're doing heavy loads or light loads. There right. may be benefits to combining the approaches. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but certainly from a logical standpoint, there'd be reasons why doing, or there are potential reasons why doing a combination of heavier and lighter loads might have a synergistic effect, certainly on muscle growth. But also, it it also could be dependent on the population. Are you working around an injury? Well, heavier yeah. loads can overstress joints. Mm -hmm. Do you have osteoarthritis or other conditions, particularly like for the elderly? Um, so it gives them other options. I, I do want to make the point, though, is that the research and the concept is based on taking the uh, sets close to failure. Uh, if not going to failure, certainly being in the proximity of failure, meaning that you can't do another rep or you're close to not being able to do another rep. If you're just using light loads and you're stopping 10 reps short of failure, then that's not going to have the same effect. So it doesn't mean you could just daintily lift some light weights and say, all right, now I'm going to, you know, get huge. That's that it doesn't work that way. Okay, so so maybe we could get into the the um, complementarity of different types if that if we could could and I'd mm -hmm. keen to to ask you a bit about the mechanisms, different and common mechanisms that might be going on there, but but just that thought of um, of going to failure, that as a as a similar approach. So you've got similar conditions. Is there a matching of work done for the muscle? Um, I presume if you're doing light loads, you're going to be actually doing more work overall. Um, and so it might not necessarily be like for like, but the conditions in the muscle at the point of contractile 
concentric ex- exercise. I can't really move the the weight uh, to completion anymore. That's the common factor. That is correct. Uh, so it doesn't have to be work match. So uh, set on a set okay. for set basis when you're matching set volume. But we do have some evidence that even when it's work matched, uh, there is similar effects. So okay. doing more, some more heavier load sets, there's less evidence of that. But the primary way we look at it is the number of sets you do. The, the amount of work is generally not considered uh, as much in the field um, because it kind of doesn't matter. You know, you, you look at how many sets on a time basis. Now you could say it is somewhat less efficient to use from a time time efficiency standpoint. A lighter load set is going to take you longer. If you're doing 30 reps versus 10 reps, and let's say your 10 reps is 30 seconds, you're doing one, uh, let's say one up, two down, one second up, two seconds down. That's a 30-second set of 10 reps. It's a 90-second set with 30 reps. So there there will be a greater time commitment in that respect. Mm. But uh, again, it doesn't mean you have... I'm just saying that the science does show uh, that you have options in that regard. And yeah, that those are considerations if your lifestyle... If though that extra time is going to be detrimental to your lifestyle goals, then that's something you need to to weigh in a cost benefit and a risk reward. So, so if there's a similar response in terms of muscle growth, muscle size, etc., is the differences in the routes to get to the top of that mountain? Is are there different mechanisms at play, or are there common mechanisms? Uh, that are at work whilst whilst you're recovering, adapting, integrating new proteins into the muscle, is that stimulated by the same pathways? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there is some evidence that there are different pathways involved, different anabolic intracellular signaling pathways. Um, mechanistic data is difficult to... Uh, to make sense out of in a lot of ways, because you can see differences in pathways. And does that necessarily mean there will be a synergism if you're using different pathways that let's say you're, you target this pathway using this type of strategy and this pathway from using this type of strategy. So they will have a synergism and you'll get greater growth. It's possible, but we don't have good evidence that that's the case. We don't have good evidence. It's not the case either. I'm saying that okay. uh, just because it might have, there might be different pathways. You can't necessarily take that to mean there will be a synergism. There is some speculation that um, there is differences in fiber type growth. So that uh, there is some evidence that your type one fibers are more targeted through light load training and that your type two fibers, your strength related fibers are more targeted through heavy load training. And there's a, somewhat of a logical basis to this because your type one fibers are more endurance oriented. So if you're using time, you know, light load that has a higher time under tension, it might be more conducive to type one fibers and vice versa. Your strength related fibers, greater force capacity, they're more fatigable. Could your uh, Hmm. higher force, uh, you know, output required with heavier loads target them to a greater extent. There is some, a few studies have shown that, but there's been other studies that conflict with that. So I'd say the evidence is still rather weak 
although I wouldn't dismiss that as being potential, I, I would say this, that there's the potential for it to have benefit, in my humble opinion here. Um, so there's a potential benefit of combining loading ranges. There's no tangible detriment right. that, that I can see logically or that we've seen in the literature. So I think it's a good strategy. Um, you know, this is where when I talk about practical recommendations, I'm giving you my opinion based upon what I know, what the literature shows, and also what I, uh, I'm using my own expertise in combination with logical reasoning to draw inferences. It doesn't mean that uh, that I might not change my opinion on that as we get more evidence uh, down the road. Right. Okay. And and what that really opens up for me is variety, and and keeping athletes engaged, keeping coaches engaged, and and being able to program with real creativity that challenges and stimulates. I think that that simple idea of adapting to a training load or the repeat about effect that you give the same thing to somebody and over time the body goes, yeah, maybe I'm not going to adapt to as much as I did before. Now, if you keep pushing and the training load is sort of the, the overall signal that that might make sense that you'll continue to get adaptation, but ultimately you want to challenge the body. You want the body to be going, Oh, that was, that was tricky. And if you're going to do that again, I'm going to put new, new things in place and, and protect you. The whole principle of variety is so important to keep athletes engaged. Yeah. And it also goes to the principle of progressive overload that you need to challenge your body beyond its present state. And like you're saying with a novel stimulus, um, so how do you go about providing that novel stimulus? There's many, that's where the art of training comes in. So we have the science of training, uh, which gives you perspective on com comparisons of variables and how they might uh, interact. But the um, the art of programming is taking the science and then using your expertise. Uh, because there are just so many different ways to, there are so many different interactions that you can't necessarily account for uh, scientifically. And also just so many different ways to go about programming. Basically, there's a never ending uh, or, you know, virtually endless uh, way, a number of ways in which you can go about uh, programming uh bodybuilding type style or, or powerlifter, any, really any type of goal, but purely from a muscle building standpoint, uh, there's, we have, just think of the variables. We have frequency, we have load, we have volume, we have exercise selection, we have um, at type of action, eccentric, concentric, we have tempo, uh, it can go on. Uh, so there's just many, many variables. And then there are the interactions between these variables. So when you change one, you potentially change another variable. And how does that work? So do you then need to add more volume or subtract more volume or change the frequency? And mm. and, um, and what's, what's emerging in the literature or have you got some particular insights for those sports or events that have mixed abilities? In the middle distance, for example, some strength endurance, even even uh, events like CrossFit, for example, that have got strength and endurance, and you know you need to build muscle for for those abilities. Any any thoughts about that sort of interference effect of 
of doing low intensity endurance based work, the the sort of jogger and the lean uh, slow twitch types versus the, the the power and the strength end of the spectrum. So that's a real interesting question, um, and this again another area where my opinion has evolved. I don't want to say it's changed, but it certainly has evolved to some extent, and there is evidence of a what's called the chronic uh, interference hypothesis where uh, endurance, especially cardiorespiratory endurance type training um, and resistance type training have conflicting pathways or elicit conflicting intracellular responses. So um, endurance, aerobic endurance type training it tends to elicit a more catabolic response, upregulates catabolic pathways. And, and this is again in a bubble because it's not, it's not a black and white thing, but I'm giving you kind of the, uh, the simplified version of it. And the uh, resistance training gives you or upregulates your anabolic pathways. And there's research dating back to the nineties, seminal research, which looked at mice. They, they took rodents, and they stimulated them with electrical currents in a way, first in a pulsatile manner that would replicate like a, uh, aerobic endurance type training, although it wasn't targeting the aerobic system per se, but mm. it was targeting the muscles in, an, in a very highly endurance type manner versus uh, pulsatile, strong pulsatile uh, um, stimuli that are intermittent, much more intermittent that would tend to replicate uh, resistance training and it showed this chronic interference it showed that the pulsatile the uh, high frequency pulsatile where you're getting more endurance type uh, replicating the endurance work upregulated the ampk pathway which is a catabolic pathway and the um pulsatile that was pulsatile uh, electrical stimuli that were replicating the resistance were more uh upregulating your anabolic systems what was called your pi 3K pathway, uh, which is an anabolic pathway that is re that regulates mTOR, which is a uh, anabolic enzyme. Um, it's not that simple, and so it's nice to look at these type. That was an ex vivo study called ex vivo, mm -hmm. where they basically stimulated the the muscle outside of the uh, animal. Um, it in in human physiology, the way in in what we call ecologically valid training practices, real world training, the body doesn't respond like it does under those types of conditions. And the evidence really has come around to show that there's not really much interference at moderately, um, at moderate levels of aerobic endurance. So uh, now if you start doing, let's say, long distance running. Let's say you're going to do a marathon. You're going out running for an hour and a half, two hours a day. That's different. But in the classic, you know, half hour, 40 minutes of in, so uh, steady state cardio, um, moderate intensity, uh, steady state cardio, or conversely doing like your high intensity interval training, 20 minutes, three times a week. There's really no evidence that that has appreciable negative effects. In some respects, there's some positive adaptations that are seen, particularly for your uh, untrained individuals. 
Um, now, when you're more well-trained, we don't have a lot of good data on that. And there is some at least logical rationale why you might need to do even less of that. But I, I do think that the evidence is coming around to show that as long as you have fairly moderate volumes, uh, duration, frequency, and your overall volume within, let's say, a week's time, um, it really is not going to have negative effects. And, and I'd also say that there are strategies that can be utilized to mitigate any negative effects. One of them is to try to separate the uh, the bouts either on separate days or let's say morning, evening. So if possible, the best strategy would be to do it, let's say Monday resistance, Tuesday uh, aerobic, et cetera. That doesn't work for a lot of people in a lot of ways. And a lot of times people are going to do resistance training more than three days a week. So that wouldn't necessarily line up. But if you can't do morning, evening, the best strategy is to do your resistance training first, your aerobic training after, because there tends to be more of a negative effect on your ability to carry out resistance training when you do the aerobic training first. So people tend to get more tired out from the endurance training, whereas the resistance training will not really have negative impacts on doing your cardio. And is there an order effect in terms of what the body's left with last in terms of if you were to, if you were prioritizing strength and power, for example, if you did that second and that's the resonant uh, stimulus that's left in the muscle, uh, and if you were to flip them around, would it be the vice versa? Uh, I'm not sure which is, so again, well, why don't you try to clarify? Yeah. So if you were to say, if, if you were a, maybe a 400 meter athlete and your priority maybe is more strength and power versus say a 1500 meter runner whose priority is endurance. If you were doing those training sessions together, could you flip the order where the priority is the stimulus that you value most and that's left after the, the second stimulus is the one that the muscle perhaps is is throbbing with afterwards totally agree and uh so i was basically mm. saying if your goal is to maximize hypertrophy that would be the strategy uh to to do your resistance training first if your goal let's say if you are a distance runner um Doing strength training is an afterthought. Well, I shouldn't say an afterthought, but it's an adjunct. It's secondary. Uh, it, it's going to be secondary to your primary goal. And it's important. It, certainly there is good evidence that um, there's even some evidence of an injury preventative effect. But certainly uh, it helps to give a final kick, uh, can help out in the last leg of a race. But it's it's not going to be your primary goal. And certainly hypertrophy would not be a goal. So you'd want to focus on the strength aspect, which would be lower volumes. Uh, and in that respect, I certainly would recommend doing your aerobic training first uh, in, you know, under those conditions and your strength training after. So certainly my experience of working with uh, sports people that are, that have got conflicting demands. I think that my experience when you have to sort of course correct and you have to overdevelop a certain area because either it's been neglected or it's not responded 
say, for example, you've got a power athlete and the endurance is really starting to drop down. I'm, I'm going to and thinking of multi-eventers, heptathletes, decathletes now, where they have got competing demands. Um, my experience of when you or when they get injured and you think, okay, we can't load them heavily, but so we're going to work on some of that, in, those endurance qualities to build some of those up. I often find that some of the, the power aspect, the strength aspect, the muscle growth, it doesn't actually go down that much at all. It's always surprised me how much is preserved with general training and that you have a, a genetic underpinning that is in one certain direction of being a sprint power athlete anyway. So you have to work quite hard to, to, to push it. I think the, the one thing that I would say is that when you've got different people looking at the same problem, you've got hot views. Uh, you've got people saying, no, 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 don't, don't do the endurance <laughs> for the heptathlete because that's going to affect the high jump. Uh, so you've got strong views about that interference effect as opposed to perhaps the reality of what I've seen over time. Yeah, so from a maintenance, I think you have to separate out yeah. maximizing a certain quality, strength, power, uh, hypertrophy, versus preserving that quality. And it is very or much easier to preserve a quality than it is to enhance the quality. So you can preserve hypertrophy by doing very low volumes of training, uh, much less than your normal. There's one study showed that one ninth of previous volume was sufficient to preserve a hyper hypertrophy gain during a, a resistance training program. Wow. Uh, in young individuals, older individuals, they kind of have to do a little more. At least that that study seemed to show that. Um, but yeah, but you can uh, maintenance is a much easier quality to uh, to achieve when it comes to then increasing, particularly as you become more and more well trained. So the more well trained you are, the harder, the closer you are to your quote unquote genetic ceiling, and thus the more difficult it is to continue gaining your the amount the uh, ma uh magnitude of gains and the uh, time it takes to get those gains are going to be much it's going to be a much steeper slope to climb to get those gains mm. you, you you mentioned before about when you're supporting athletes you're looking to to overcome a plateau for them and so that as a simple signal a simple message for people to tune into that i hit a bit, a bit of a plateau whether it's with a certain muscle group or whether it's a certain capability that in itself fundamentally thinking maybe i need to change things around maybe i do need to to open up the different possibilities um yeah totally agree what um so what's what's next for you in terms of research in this area what are the next research questions that you're starting to probe because this i love this line of of questioning and research that that at least asks the question it opens up those possibilities it opens up the variety it opens up the loading range for people what's um what's next on the question list so i am very blessed to have a uh very passionate group of uh, upper level master's students who do theses. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, I always, uh, I work very closely and mentor these students, but some of the times it's driven through them, the ideas, and we, we have a give and take. So sometimes I 
I don't want to say impose my ideas, but offer my ideas uh, to students to run with. And yeah, we have just so many studies, interesting studies that either have been carried out. We have a really cool one that's in review now that looked at um, supervision. Uh, so we had both groups doing the exact same routine. One group was fully supervised by our research staff. The other group did the same exact routine on their own. And we showed that supervision is actually a very important thing because the group that was supervised got substantially greater muscle growth, uh, virtually on all the muscles that we looked at. For like-for-like like training, com completely exactly, exactly the, the same. Yeah, and and again, what we assume is is that uh, the people did not push themselves as hard when they were doing it by themselves, that they were substantially further away from failure. Okay. Um, and that seems you certainly should be in cl fairly close proximity. I, I wouldn't necessarily say you need to gut a failure, but you need to be pretty close to maximize your results. And apparently, again, we, we can't know uh, trying to tease out again mechanisms is just not something we could do, but that makes logical sense. I, yeah. Sure. Is, that, um, is that a psychosocial uh, aspect there or in terms of supervision? Supervision in terms of a Hawthorne effect of somebody watching over you or are you talking about specifically spotting a bar? Could be partially due to that. So, okay. yeah, I mean, there is some evidence that getting feedback is important. I actually just uh, we have a paper that was just published, should be coming out imminently, which uh, looked at feedback on uh, giving uh, – verbal feedback and if you do it uh each rep it's even better so that's what we do generally you know come on you could do it keep going keep going um but it also could be like you said the hawthorne effect there can be ego effects too that uh, people want to you know um uh, they don't want to look like they're wimping out if you will and it's, yeah okay i'm just get you know uh and it could just be too that people when they're on their own, they get more lazy. Uh, I, I mean, again, trying to get into the heads of, of what people are doing is very difficult. And trying to then tease out what the mechanisms are, we can't say. But certainly it shows that um, the supervision aspect is important. It would show that having a personal trainer can be beneficial just in that sense, or perhaps even a workout partner who's pushing you. Or when I say having a workout partner, someone who is serious about training and who looks to push you. If you just have a workout partner where you sit around and talk all the time, that might be even worse. But anyway, that that's a, <laughs> that's uh, another that's another condition to if someone's just chatting and distracting you <laughs> to see if it actually reduces the effects. But we have a study that we just finished. Uh, I won't get into it too much, but we looked at deloads, which if you're not familiar with deloads, it's a, uh, it's, very popular in bodybuilding and powerlifting circles as well, where you train and then you take a period, usually it's one week uh, of reduced training. Now we did a detraining where they took the week off. A lot of times it's just reduced. You'll do less volume, uh, sometimes less intensity. Um, so interesting findings there. We did a nine week study. One group trained the whole nine weeks. The other group took a week off in week five we looked at various hypertrophy, strength, muscle endurance uh, results. So that'll be interesting. We're just submitting that. Uh, Can you now. give us a hint as to, 
I'm, I'm um, already kind of wondering about per Agard's work about type two X overshoots and whether you're actually getting a, a rebound effect of, of over adaptation during that, that rest period. The uh, hint that I'll give you is that it's caused me to rethink my previous um, way of thinking on it, but uh, I don't want to give up too much here because we're we're still compiling the lit the data. We're about to submit this, but we I don't want to. Uh, it would be very nuanced, and again, without really uh, having fully written up the manuscript. Now we're we're kind of in the process, getting ready to submit this uh, shortly. So fascinating. So. I love the I love the tone of your communications. I love the fact that you are being true to those scientific principles of look this isn't my idea this is the data this is the this is what the science is showing us that here's the different possibilities and I've really enjoyed the the, the type of communication that you're putting out there that I think is really supportive of the different possibilities for for people's programming so Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast, Brad. I really appreciate the conversation. I loved, loved it. It's my pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. And we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week.